The days are getting shorter, and you can feel it in the air. Yes, it's that time of year. Pumpkin is finally back at Dunkin'. It's the cozy you've been craving all summer long, now in your cup at Dunkin'. Pick up all of your pumpkin favorites, like the signature pumpkin spice iced latte, or a pumpkin iced coffee, and bakery items like pumpkin donuts and muffins. Sip into something comfortable to celebrate the start of cozy season. Use the Dunkin' app for contactless ordering. America runs on Dunkin'. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to seven disturbing chronicle stories of scary, paranormal, and horror tales. I am your host, K-Town, and tonight I want to start out by uh, taking a little moment to say thank you to those that have taken the time to leave us five-star ratings and reviews and basically giving us your feedback and thoughts on the show, which are important to us. Please continue to do that. And if you do, I will give you a shout out on the show. So these people here, I want to recognize first, um, I have Guinness boy, 1977 says, this is a fantastic podcast, perfect length, no fluff, just the super creepy and interesting stories that leave me looking over my shoulder sometimes. That was a great review. Thank you. Okay, so we have Q-U-S-X-O says five stars plus, plus, plus. (laughs) Please upload more. I can't get enough. Thank you for that. And Isabel says my favorite podcast ever. This podcast is the right kind of scary. Wow, I love that. I love that review. Thank you for that, Isabel. And uh, Cooch11 says, great show, awesome, creepy show for horror fans. K-Town has the greatest narrator voice ever. Very Zelda, May Rubenstein, Robert Stack. Love it. Thank you for that. And Hulk Smash 42 says, great podcast. I love listening to it while I'm working overnight. And that's uh, that's no doubt the perfect time to to check it out. All right. And Gerard Crutch says, favorite podcast. I've been looking for a good podcast to listen to. And I found that and much more when I came across yours. Thank you for that, Gerard. All right. And Raven Shalane says, I'm totally cracked out on this podcast. Uh, Hello, I'm Raven. I'm new to podcast. Uh, This is my new addiction. I'm a night owl. And after losing interest in TV and YouTube, I stumbled upon your show. Please continue, K-Town. Thank you for that, Raven. And uh, Ugly Toast says, says 10,000 out of 10 stars. Wow. Dude, this podcast is amazing. It's spooky and just sounds great. Can't wait to hear more. Thank you for that. And Jesse Girl 143 says, awesome. This podcast and her voice is perfect. Keep up the great work. Thank you for that, Jesse. And DV3279 says, awesome. Great podcast. Really enjoy the material. Well researched and covers a lot of things you don't hear on other shows. Thank you very much for that. Um, if you want to get a shout out, please take a moment to leave a five star rating review. Uh, but more than that, if you have friends that would like this type of material, um, there's nothing better than sharing the love. You know, tell them, you know, check the show out on their way to work or while they're home, you know, maybe doing things around the house or whatever. Um, maybe they'll like the show, hopefully. And um, you, you help us by spreading the word now. Let's get on with the show. When you're traveling on a long road trip, 
a rest stop can provide a much needed break and an opportunity to recharge your batteries. Unfortunately though, because they are often situated in isolated locations where help is many miles away, rest areas are not always the safest places in the world. Here are some cases involving travelers that have become victims in their own unsolved mystery. In 1991, Gord and Jackie McAllister, an elderly couple from Lindsay, Ontario, decided to go on a road trip in their motorhome, eventually stopping to spend the night at a remote rest stop near the town of Blind River. Shortly after midnight on June 28th, the couple was awakened by a knock on their door by an unidentified man claiming to be the police. When the door was opened, a long-haired man burst inside, wielding a 22 caliber rifle and a 20-gauge shotgun. He demanded that the McAllisters handed over their valuables. After they complied with his demands, the assailant opened fire. Jackie was killed instantly, but the wounded Gord managed to flee the motorhome. Gord hid under the motorhome for cover, but before the killer could find him, another car pulled into the rest stop. It was driven by 29-year-old Brian Major, who was immediately shot to death. Afterward, the gunman jumped into the van and fled the scene. Gord was able to make it to the road and flagged down a passing truck for help and eventually provided the police with a detailed description of the suspect. The cold case remained cold until 1999 when DNA technology linked a former police officer named Ronald Glenn West with the unsolved murders of two Toronto women in 1970. There is some suspicion that West might also have been responsible for the murders of Jackie McAllister and Brian Major since he lived near Blind River at the time. And West's wife once remarked that the composite sketch of the suspect resembled her husband in a wig. However, the currently incarcerated West has never been linked conclusively to the Blind River rest stop murders, which to this day remain unsolved. Next, on May 15, 1979, 31-year-old nurse Jane Snow left her home in Grand Rapids, Michigan, along with her two young sons, age eight and nine. That evening, Jane was driving northbound on 75 when she decided to pull over at the Loon Lake rest area just outside of Gaylor. Jane headed for the ladies' room while her sons used the men's room. When Jane did not exit the ladies' room, her sons decided to check inside. They were horrified to find their mother's murdered body on the floor. She had been stabbed 23 times. The boys were able to flag down a passing motorist for help, but at no point did they see their mother's killer. Around the same time, a state trooper was driving southbound on 75 and picked up a hitchhiker less than a half mile from the rest area. The trooper noticed some scratches on the man's hands, but he was unaware that the murder had occurred nearby. He soon dropped the hitchhiker off, but took his name and his address. The suspect's name was John Magali, and he had an outstanding warrant for a bad check charge in Rhode Island. 
Magali was eventually picked up and questioned about Jane Snow's murder. That night, he had been at a bar in nearby Indian River and had left in a rage after a fight with his wife. When Magali was tracked down by police, he was wearing a shirt with blood stains on it. But subsequent tests determined that the blood did not belong to Jane. Ultimately, there was not enough evidence to charge Magali with the murder, which continues to be unsolved for more than 35 years. On April 20, 2001, a couple named Curtis and Christina Mayer were found dead at a Collier County, Florida rest stop in an apparent murder-suicide. Curtis had shot Christina in the head before turning the gun on himself. The story, however, took a bizarre turn when a torn birth certificate belonging to a woman named Camilla Henson was found in the rest stop's trash can. Camilla's wallet and credit cards were also inside the mayor's vehicle. Eight days later, the partially burned, decomposing body of Camilla Henson was found in the desert outside of Reno, Nevada. Camilla had two daughters, two-year-old Shayna and four-month-old Sasha, but the children were nowhere to be found. Camilla originally hailed from Portland and had been planning to take her daughters to British Columbia. Since Camilla was friends with Christina Mayer, Christina and Curtis would accompany the Hensons on their trip. On April 4th, they all traveled to Sacramento so Camilla could pick up her birth certificate. The last time Camilla and her daughters were seen alive when they checked into a Reading Hotel the following evening. However, it turned out that Curtis Mayer was actually a fugitive named Frank Owering who was wanted in Missouri for attempting to murder his former wife. It is theorized that the couple convinced Camilla to retrieve her birth certificate to use as documentation to cross the border, but subsequently murdered Camilla so that Christina could steal her identity. On April 9th, Christina used Camilla's birth certificate in Las Vegas to obtain a fraudulent identification card under Camilla's name. The whole thing ended with Frank's murder-suicide, but no one knows what actually happened to Camilla's children, Shayna and Sasha. Sadly, the couple took all the answers about the children's fate to their graves. On June 28, 2004, a maintenance crew arrived to do some work at a rest area near Interstate 70 outside of Wright City, Missouri. They were shocked to find a human female torso near the bottom of a small hillside. The torso was found in a remote section near a back entrance, which is normally sealed off by a gate. However, the gate had been left open the previous evening, so the perpetrator likely used this entrance to drive into the rest area and dispose of the torso. It's estimated that the victim was 20 to 45 years old. Her head, arms, and legs were all removed, and she was wearing a bra which appeared to be too big for her. The unidentified woman's missing extremities were never recovered. An exact cause of death for the victim could not be established either. It's likely that she was killed at another location 
approximately 12 hours before she was found. The torso appeared to have separate scars from both a C-section and an apodectomy. There were also some stretch marks which seemed to indicate that the woman had been pregnant at some point. She looked to be in very good shape with little body fat, but she also had a noticeable kidney infection and some scarring on her ovaries. In spite of these intriguing clues, investigators have never been able to determine the identity of the woman or the person who dumped her at the rest area or come up with any answers about why her body was dismembered in such a brutal fashion. Next, we have 67-year-old Dexter Stefanik. In the fall of 1985, 67-year-old widower Dexter Stefanik left his home in Wisconsin and traveled to Corbett, Oregon for an extended stay with his son's family. On October the 18th, Dexter decided that he wanted to return home and left his son's residence for a lengthy drive back to Wisconsin. The following morning, Dexter's abandoned vehicle was found in the Bad Root Rest Area located approximately 21 miles outside of Glendive, Montana. The car had been doused with gasoline and set on fire, but there were no signs of Dexter anywhere. Four months later, Dexter's body was found in a remote dumping area about 17 miles away. He had been beaten and shot twice in the back of the head. Investigators determined that Dexter probably stopped at the Bad Root Rest area when he crossed paths. Approximately two hours before Dexter's burning car was found, the rest area's custodian arrived at the location. The only vehicle in the parking lot was a Chevrolet pickup truck, but there was no one around. Shortly after, as the custodian was leaving, he noticed Dexter's car pulling into the lot. It was driven by an unidentified man who climbed out carrying two cans of gasoline. This man likely torched Dexter's vehicle before driving away in that pickup truck. Another puzzling aspect of this case is the fact that Dexter's suitcase was found at a landfill alongside his body. Money was still inside the suitcase, but Dexter's clothing was strewn everywhere, and the condition of the clothing seemed to indicate that it wasn't planted there until months after the murder. To this day, no one knows the identity of the mysterious man who murdered Dexter Stefanik or what his motives could have possibly been. Lee Cutler On October 20th, 2017, 18-year-old high school senior Lee Cutler was scheduled for a noon shift at a clothing store in his hometown of Buffalo Grove, Illinois. He never showed up, and he did not return home that night. The following day, Lee's car was found nearly 200 miles away at a rest area near Barboo, Wisconsin. There was no sign of Lee, but the vehicle contained an admission receipt from the Kettle Morian State Park. It was time-stamped from the previous afternoon, indicating that Lee went there after leaving Buffalo Grove, but no one knows why he traveled to Barboo. On the same day he disappeared, Lee was captured on surveillance footage at a Walmart, purchasing some cold medicine 
and a bottle of pain medication. This empty pill bottle, along with several of Lee's personal belongings, was eventually recovered next to the Baraboo River. Lee's pants were submerged in water and they contained his wallet, ID, and car keys. However, a search of the Barbu River failed to turn up Lee's body, and since fallen trees had created an obstruction in the water, it could not have flowed very far. A letter to Lee's mother was also found in which Lee wrote, Finally, I'll get to sleep, raising fears about a possible suicide. This letter just happened to be inside a copy of the book, into the wild, which chronicled the story of a delusioned young man named Christopher McCandless. McCandless perished after venturing out into the Alaskan wilderness, and there is speculation that Lee might have followed his lead and met a similar fate. However, no trace of Lee Cutler has ever been found. Xavier Bulligan. In the summer of 2011, Xavier Bulligan a 29-year-old divorced father from Ponticelles, Belgium, took his two young children on a camping trip in the mountainous region of France. At approximately 2 a.m. on July 19th, Xavier and his children were traveling home when they decided to pull over at a rest area in the French Alps. Xavier went to use the restroom while his sleeping children remained in the vehicle. Shortly thereafter, An employee from the motorway operating company heard some gunshots as he passed by. He investigated the rest area and found Xavier's body in front of one of the toilets. He had been shot four times, but the killer was nowhere to be found. At the time of the murder, there were several truck drivers parked at a rest area on the other side of the motorway. They were questioned and tested for gunshot residue on their hands but all of them came up negative. Xavier had injuries on his hands, which indicated a struggle with his killer before his death. There were numerous theories about Xavier's murder, including that he was the victim of a contract killing or of a random failed carjacking. One year later, a British tourist was ambushed and shot to death in his car on a remote road in the French Alps. His wife and mother-in-law were also killed, but the children survived the attack. Since the shootings occurred less than 100 miles from each other, this led to the speculation that both murders were committed by a tourist-hating serial killer. However, no definitive connection has ever been found between the two crimes, which are both still unsolved. On the morning of January 25th, 1984, a 1968 Chevrolet Bel Air was found at a Willow Patch rest stop in White Pine County, Nevada. The decomposing body of a white male, estimated to be in his 40s, was in the front seat. The obvious cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. As a rubber hose had been connected to the vehicle's exhaust pipe and ran through the passenger side window. The deceased victim carried no identification, but there was a suicide note which appeared to be written in a form of a prayer and was signed J. He also had $201.40 in his pocket, and the note requested 
that the money be donated to the Mormon church. It appeared that the man had made a deliberate attempt to conceal his identity. Even though a lot of clothing was found in the vehicle, all of the tags had been removed. The car's license plate was missing, but there was a vehicle identification number. However, all attempts to use the VIN to uncover any record of the Bel Air came up empty. The car's back seat was also missing, which seemed to indicate that the man had been living in the vehicle. The most unique piece of evidence was a homemade electric component box in the glove compartment. It had leads connected to the starter and most likely a timing device used to automatically turn off the vehicle. Even though investigators had plenty of clues to go on, they have never been able to find out anything about Jay or his decision to take his own life. In the summer of 1985, Jackie Abute was planning to make a cross-country move from California to Massachusetts. She would be accompanied by her 19-year-old son, David Lovely, and his 18-year-old sister, Allison. The family loaded all of their belongings into a moving truck, but David wanted to make the entire journey on his motorcycle. While his mother and sister traveled in the truck, David followed closely behind them. Things went smoothly until they stopped in Evanston, Wyoming on August the 5th. David told his family that he needed to get some repairs done on his motorcycle, but agreed to meet them at a nearby rest area. When Jackie and Allison arrived at the rest area, later that day, David was not there. Even after they spent the entire night at the location, David never showed up. The family soon learned that David's aunt received a phone call from him. According to David, his motorcycle had broken down, so he pushed it to a truck stop in Fort Bridger and encountered a rough-looking man on a Harley-Davidson. Even though David was initially afraid of him, the man actually wound up fixing the motorcycle, so David planned to rejoin his family. This would be the last anyone ever heard from him. Nine days later, David's motorcycle was found on an isolated dirt road. The keys were in the ignition. The tank was half full, and the motorcycle appeared to be in good condition. David's knapsack and books were also found on the ground beside it. Other than the phone call to his aunt, there has never been no confirmed sightings of David Lovely after he separated from his family and he remains missing for more than 30 years. Father Ronaldo Riviera. On the evening of August 7, 1982, a Catholic priest, Father Ronaldo Riviera, received a phone call at St. Francis Cathedral in Santa Fe. The caller said his name was Michael Cormillo and that he immediately required the services of a priest to administer last rites to a dying individual. Carmelo claimed that he was calling from a rest stop near the town of Waldo and that Father Riviera should meet him there. Riviera complied with the caller's request and left St. Francis, but this would be the last time he was seen alive. Three days later, Father Riviera's body was found on a remote road, approximately three miles from the rest stop. He had been shot to death. Riviera's car was later found at another rest stop 
near the town of Grants, and the vehicle was wiped clean of physical evidence. The only thing taken from Riviera was his last rights kit, and a check of the name Michael Carmillo came up empty. The motive for the crime is unknown, and it's unlikely that Father Riviera was specifically targeted, as it was only by the complete chance that Riviera happened to be the one that answered the phone that night. There is some speculation that Riviera's murder might be connected to the 1984 disappearance of another Catholic priest, Father John Kerrigan. Father Kerrigan went missing shortly after being transferred to Ronan, Montana, amid allegations of child sexual abuse. Even though Kerrigan's body was never recovered, his car was found abandoned and there was a large amount of blood indicating foul play. While no conclusive connection has been established between the two crimes, there are enough similarities to suggest that Father Riviera and Father Kerrigan might have been murdered by the same person. While rest stops do provide the convenience of stopping to allow travelers to use the restroom, stretch their legs, and enjoy a snack, these areas are often in unfamiliar and remote locations, so it's important to be cautious and choose wisely because a rest stop can easily become your last stop. Thank you for listening to this edition of 7. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, K-Town, and I'll see you next time on 7. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal.